Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Thank you, Paul. Uh, welcome. Great to see you here uh, at Thurfield. Welcome if you're watching online. And uh, if you don't know who I am, my name's Paul and I serve as part of the leadership team here as one of the elders and pastor at Thurfield Chapel. Uh, let's pray once again before we come to dig in a bit more on that parable of the Good Samaritan. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, uh, that we would see, or that you would open our ears, that we would hear our hearts, that we would respond to your truth. Lord, as we spend time now meditating, thinking on, Lord, that word that you have for us uh, as revealed in Scripture. May we see uh, Jesus. May we see, may we treasure, delight ourselves in his goodness. Lord, may we know and may we reflect him more. Amen. So, um, the house I grew up in, when you went through uh, the front door, it had a hallway, it was about a meter square, and to the right was the kitchen. If you went straight on ahead, it was a living room, and it was one of those sort of setups where to get to the other rooms in the house, you had to go through the living room. And there were times as a teenager where I'd be walking through the living room and my dad would say to me, Paul, could you go and put the kettle on, please? Now, you know, I've I've got other things that I want to do. Maybe go and play some computer games, sit down, watch some TV, lounge about, maybe pick up a guitar uh, in a few few years uh, later in my teenage years. So I, I had plans to do. My, my plans for that day didn't involve going and putting the kettle on. But being the good, obedient son that I was, all right, I'll go, go into the kitchen somewhat reluctantly and put the kettle on, flick, done. Um, sometimes I'd even check to see if there's water in the kettle. But, yeah, that's, that's what I was asked to do, go and put the kettle on. I went and I did it and I flicked the switch and kettle on, job done. Did I really do what my dad had asked of me? Well, it was... Now, I, I could recite what he said. If someone said, what does your dad want you to do? He wants you, me to go and put the kettle on. Uh, and that's what I did. If someone said, did you put the kettle on? Yes, I did. I flicked the switch and I put the kettle on. But actually, what, what I was doing, I, I viewed what my dad asked of me is this intrusion into my day, and so I interpreted his words in a manner to suit myself. Now, do we do the same when it comes to our Heavenly Father? Do we see God's instructions? Do we see his commands as an intrusion on our lives? And to be honest with you, there are times when I do look at what God says in that way. Not as though his commands are good and that they're life-giving, but as though my heavenly father's saying something as mundane as, can you go and put the kettle on? I'm like, all right, okay, if I have to. Flick, done. And yet, when that's our response, it shows that our view of God, our view of ourselves is disordered. And so what is it that we need to see? What is it that Jesus wants us to see? And we turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, this morning to find out. So 
be really helpful for you uh, if you've got a Bible with you or one of our ag journals. Or um, if you've got a phone, uh, use one of those to, to follow along. And um, we're, we're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel. We're going to be doing that through to the summer. This Gospel that is written to demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's plans, uh, His promises. And from the very beginning, His purpose has been that the blessing of His presence extends over the whole earth. And we come to perhaps one of Jesus' more famous parables this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's just over a year ago, we were looking at parables when we were in part of Matthew's gospel. And we saw then a parable is somewhat difficult to define. Because a parable isn't just one thing. Sometimes a parable is a short story. Sometimes that term parable is used to describe kind of a pithy saying, a bit like a proverb in the Bible. Sometimes a parable works by comparing things. So the kingdom of heaven is like, as a comparison. Sometimes a parable works by contrasting things. Jesus says, if that's what the young just judge says, then like, this is what your father says. Or if that's what your earthly fathers would do, then how much more your heavenly father? So sometimes it compares, sometimes it contrasts. Sometimes uh, a parable, the, the importance is each of those, uh, let me start again. Uh, sometimes with, it, with a parable, the, the details in the story are significant. So Jesus would say, you know, the soils, this is what the stony soil represents. This is what the birds represent. At other times, those details in the story, they're not necessarily representing something else. So it can be difficult to come up with this definition, what is a parable? There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach as though we say this is what a parable is and you've just got to find you know, the hidden meaning and crack the codes and you'll understand the parable. To have an idea of what the parable is saying, we need to be looking at the context. Why is Jesus telling this parable at this point in time? What is the point that Jesus is seeking to make? And so we're given the context. We're given the reason for this parable here in the Good Samaritan. I think often when we think of the Good Samaritan, we don't think of the background to it. So we're just going to spend a few moments looking at the background because that's going to help us to understand and to apply this parable well. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we might think that's an odd question. What must I do to inherit something? Because you don't do something to inherit something. An inheritance isn't something you earn. It's something that you receive. But actually that word inherit here is used quite often in the Greek translation of the Old Testament around the time of Jesus. Uh, to translate uh, the word possess when the people were talking about possessing the promised land throughout the Old Testament. God says, I'll give this land to you as your possession, as, a, as your inheritance. Now, there's a period in Israel's history known as the exile. We've touched on it at various points where they are removed from the land. Foreign armies come in and invade the northern kingdom. It's taken out by Assyria southern kingdom of Judah some 150 or so years later uh, by Babylon. 
And so there's this period where they're not in the land, is that they forfeit the inheritance. And we're told it's on account of their wickedness because they turn away from God. They become like the other nations. And so with that background in mind, this question, what must I do to inherit, actually isn't that strange. How should I live so that I don't repeat Israel's mistake? What must I do to make sure that I possess, and not the land here, but eternal life? It's a question that was common at the time. It's something of a a theological hot topic. It's a question that comes from Daniel chapter 12. So in Daniel 12, uh, we read, At that time your people, everyone whose name is written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Daniel speaks of this future resurrection, uh, and after it there are two destinies, uh, one rising to everlasting life, the other to everlasting contempt. And so the theological question in the day people would ask is, how can I be sure, how can I guarantee that I am counted among the righteous and not the wicked? And so as this expert in the law is asking this question to Jesus, taking one of these hot topics, in many ways he's asking, what does righteous living look like? What does righteous living look like? And yet notice in verse 25, he does this to test Jesus. Expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. He wants to know how Jesus responds. Is Jesus going to give the approved answer? And so Jesus says to him, Well, what is written on the law? He throws it back to this expert in the law. You're an expert in the law. What does the law say? The law here referring to what Jesus would call uh, Torah, which means God's instruction. First five books of the Bible. God gave instruction to his people how they were to live as his people. So Jesus says to him, well, what's it say in the law? What's it say in Torah? How do you read it? And this expert in the law uh, gives a textbook answer. He, he summarizes the whole of Torah in his two great commands. Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, that's it. You've answered correctly. That's a good summary of Torah. And then he says to him, do this then, and you will live. And then we come now. This is the turning point. This is the crunch. This is the reason for the parable. Have a look, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus. This expert in the law wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. To justify means to be declared to be in the right. This man wanted to declare himself to be in the right. He's looking for this definition where he can say, yeah, I've done that. Or... I go above and beyond that. At that time, there was a one teaching that said, if someone hadn't spoken to you for over a month, you didn't have to class them as a neighbor. You could count them as a personal enemy. Well, that makes this command a whole lot easier, doesn't it? 
love your neighbor, suddenly we reduce the pool of people that we need to show love to. Wanted to justify himself. It's like me. Flick. You said, put the kettle on, I've done it. Flick that switch. Minimal compliance. So as this man is asking this question, it's not coming from this desire to know God and to know his ways. He wants to pat himself on the back. What is that thing? Let me tick it off my list and then I can feel good about myself. But Jesus loves us too much to leave us with this false sense of assurance. And so he tells this parable. This is a context for the parable. And the first thing today then is that we are meant to be challenged by this parable. We're meant to be challenged by Christ's love. So verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a picture of it. It's about 17 miles long. It goes from around 2,500 feet above sea level down to around 800 feet below sea level. Big, steep road. And it was a road that was fraught with danger. It's kind of the equivalent of walking down an unlit canal path under dark bridges in a rough part of town. You know, this is a place, if you're going to get mugged, that's where it's going to happen. There are lots of places to hide out. No one's going to be able to come to your aid uh, and help. And this is what happens to this man going down this ravine. He's attacked by robbers. They take all his possessions. They leave him naked and half dead. Now, fortunately, there was someone else who was coming down that road. And we're told there's a priest. There's a priest who's coming down, coming from Jerusalem. He sees the man. I mean, you may not spot the person. Could be lying anywhere. But, but he spotted man. He sees the man. And then we're told he crosses over. Goes on his way. Passes by on the other side. But then another man comes down, a Levite, someone who worked in the temple a bit like a a priest's assistant. He comes to the place and he sees the man as well. And he also passes over on the other side. We're not told why they ignore this man who is lying there. What we do know is that they're coming from Jerusalem, they're going down the road. So they've finished their service at the temple. So it's not like they see this body and they think, well, it could be a dead body. And if I touch that, I'm going to be defiled and I won't be able to complete my service in the temple. They're going away from the temple. Now, we don't know the reason why they ignore him. But it's certainly not because of ritual defilement. Maybe they're afraid that they're going to be attacked by robbers. Maybe they just think it's not my responsibility. Got other things to do. Someone else will will deal with that. These two men, they walk on. They leave this man in the same condition. And then we're told a third traveler comes down the road. And it's not someone that you would expect. Now, if I started telling a joke to you and I said there was an Englishman, there was an Irishman, and 
Scotsman. Yeah, you, you know, there's a, a Scotsman. Uh, they come together in that three. We're used to that pattern. In a similar way, there was something of a pattern in certain books of the Old Testament. And we have the grouping of priests, Levites, uh, and people. There are some examples up there from 2 Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So that grouping, not an Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman, but that you have a priest, a Levite, and one of the people. So your expectation for the first hearers of this parable, well, we've had our priest, we've had our Levite, probably now we're going to have a Jewish layperson, maybe some respected rabbi, maybe a Pharisee. They're going to be the person who comes down the road and they are going to save the day. Instead, we're told, verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. We considered, I think, about two weeks ago, uh, how Samaritans uh, and Jews, they were fierce enemies. No love between those two groups. Yet it's a Samaritan coming down this road who sees the man and who takes pity on him. And he goes to the man And using his own resources, he bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Just imagine, he's going to be bent over this man. He's open to attack now. He's not looking out to see if there are people there ready to pounce on him. He makes himself vulnerable, ministering to this man out of his own resources. He puts him on the back of his own donkey. Now, whether he was riding the donkey himself before, maybe he had provisions on the donkey Either way, there's another inconvenience in his journey because the donkey has to now carry the load of this wounded man. Carrying this man on the donkey, he comes to an inn. Now, think for a moment of uh, Wild West movies. And often there's that scene, isn't there, where a stranger appears at some sort of saloon and they come through those doors and all of a sudden the music stops. And everyone turns and they look at this stranger who's just come in. And that question is, will they be accepted or not? What's going to happen? Is there going to be a big gunfight at this point in time? Now picture that scene. But standing at the door is a Native American. And he has slumped over his horse a half-dead, beaten-up cowboy. How do you think that scene is going to play out? It's a similar sort of thing that is happening here. This Samaritan turns up with this half-dead, injured man at an inn in Jewish territory. He is taking his life into his own hands and going into this scenario. And then out of his own pockets, the next day he gives two days' worth of wages to the innkeeper. and says, look after him. And you know what? I'm going to come back. I'm going to do this again. And any extra expenses you have, I'll pay for it. So having kind of survived the night in that inn, he's going to come back again and pay whatever amount of money the innkeeper says he owes him. So he's opening himself up here either to be ripped, up, uh, ripped off or to be beaten up. Or maybe both. This Samaritan had kind of every excuse to leave this man 
lying on the road. It was too dangerous. It was too risky. Besides, this man, it kind of wasn't his responsibility. And yet, moved with pity, he moves towards him, even at great personal cost. And so the expert in the law has asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? What are the limits on this command here, this limit to love? Who do I need to love? And in telling this parable, Jesus says, there are no limits. There are no limits on this command. We are to love without limits. Quite a few years ago now, we were at a friend's wedding. And during the wedding speech, he has this map projected uh, on the wall. And there's some obscure sort of town or village that circled. I think it was somewhere in Eastern Europe. And he says, this is significant. This is a significant place for our marriage because apparently it was equidistant between their home countries. It was exactly uh, in the middle. He'd worked it out by, by mileage. Uh, and then he proceeds to tell us how marriage is about meeting each other halfway, you know, meeting in the middle. Tanya and I have been married by, uh, for about six years by this point. And we look at each other and go, this guy who's been married for an hour he has no He knows nothing about what he's talking about uh, at this point in time. Now, ideally, that should be the case like in a marriage, in a relationship, when two people are walking towards, they're moving towards each other, that you meet in the middle. And yet, often, sometimes that's the definition of love that is taken. And if that's the definition of love that we're working from, we set ourselves up to be massively disappointed, to be... Massively frustrating to others. And that's not what Jesus defines love as here. Jesus doesn't say love is meeting someone halfway. But to love, love is without limits. You don't go halfway and meet them there. You just keep going. And you keep going until you meet that person. And that might be 50%. It might be 75% of the way. It might mean going 100% of the way. Love doesn't stop at the halfway point and say, I've done my bit. I fulfilled my responsibility. Love, as Jesus defines it, it keeps on going. Love is without limits. Now, don't get me wrong, in this fallen world, there are abusive relationships, and there are times where it is right to leave that relationship. And yet, I think Now, our our biggest problem, a more widespread problem, is just our self-centered nature. That we love ourselves. And so we want to know what are the limits. So it's not too costly for me because I love myself. So what are these limits? Limits to loving a a spouse or, or just our neighbor? That's what the expert in the law is asking here. What are those limits? Limits to loving others. Who do I need to show love to? You know, I I have to to spend. Maybe it needs to be costly, but I have to spend this. Uh, And who do I not need to show love to? 
bit like if, if we think in terms of money, if we're like, well, what taxes do I need to pay uh, and what are things that are optional? Who do I need to show love to and who don't I need to show love to? That's what the expert in the law wants to know. And Jesus says there are no limits. There's no limit on love. No limit on who you show love to or that amount of love that is shown. Even loving your enemies. And Jesus has already taught on that in Luke chapter 6. That citizens of the kingdom, they are to love without limits because that's what the heavenly king does. And children of God are to love without limits because that is what our heavenly father does. The love of God, it doesn't meet us halfway. The love of God keeps on going until he meets us. So what we see in Jesus, what we see in the cross, and it is because of that, it is because the love of God keeps going until he meets us where we're at. In our failures, in our struggles, in our brokenness, even in our rebellion, it is because that's the way God loves. Then not only is this about being challenged by Christ's love, it's also about being changed. In verse 36, then, Jesus asks one final question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So remember this context of a parable. Uh, the teacher in the law has asked, what do I need to do? What must I do? Jesus has just given the definition of what love is. Love without limits. And then he says to this man, well, go and do likewise. This is a paralyzing moment. We are meant to read this with a sense of uh, how. Have a look at verse 37. This expert in the law can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Which of these was a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of robbers? He just says, the one who had mercy on him. So deeply ingrained is this prejudice, this hatred. He can't even bring himself to honor the Samaritan in this story. And in this moment, the coldness of his heart is revealed. So how can he possibly go and do likewise? How can he love without limits? The context of the parable, the man wants to justify himself. He wants to declare himself to be in the right, to reduce God's commands down to this level where he can say, I've done it. And through this parable, Jesus is exposing just how far short he falls. Not only is Jesus describing in this parable, this parable is disarming this man. It's meant to disarm us. It's meant to challenge us. The point of this parable is meant to be sharp. We're not meant to feel comfortable. We're meant to be left with this question of how. If this is the definition of love, then how? Not to say, well, yeah, no, I, I do pretty well. 
just go out and see if there's any people beaten up on the streets today and fulfill Jesus' command. We're meant to be left with this sense of, I can't love in this way. It's meant to expose the coldness of our hearts. Those excuses that we come up with are revealers. That we're to recognize such love is beyond us. And if this is what God requires, then how can our place in God's kingdom be secure? How can I love? How can I have this security? Now this point in Luke's gospel, we've been seeing how Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He set out resolutely towards Jerusalem. That's where he's going. And he's not going to be deterred by anything or anyone. And Jesus has already told the disciples the reason for that. Uh, and we see back in chapter 9, verse 21-22. Jesus has said that he must suffer many things. And that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. That his death and his resurrection, Jesus says, these are essential. These things must happen And they are the answers to these questions that come to us from this passage. How can I be sure of my place in God's kingdom? And how can I go and do likewise? This teacher of the law wants to justify himself. Declare himself to be in the right. Reducing God's standards to his own Level. And when we seek to justify ourselves, we're left with this false sense of security. And thinking that we've done enough, we convince ourselves we're doing enough, but we're never entirely sure. We lack that real sense of assurance. When we seek to justify ourselves, we seek to pull down God's commands, God's requirements to our own level. When God justifies God is described as one who justifies the ungodly. And when God justifies, he doesn't lower his standards. Rather, he raises us up in Christ to meet them. To be justified is to be declared to be in the right. Justification is one of those Christian terms. You may have heard people describe justification as just as if I've never done it. That's what justification means. Justification is better than that. Because it's not just that God takes away our filthy, our soiled, our tattered garments, but that he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. And so justification isn't just just as if I've not done it. It is just as if I've lived Jesus' life. That is what it means to be justified in Scripture. That it is in Christ then God qualifies us. We don't qualify ourselves. He qualifies us to share in his kingdom. And so that's why in the second volume of Luke's work, the book of Acts, when the Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Similar question to this expert in the law here. They say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in him because our citizenship, our heavenly citizenship is not secured by what we do. It's secured by what Christ has done. We don't 
love without limits to secure our place in God's kingdom. Christ secures that place. But then, and we need these two things, then, knowing that we are secure in Christ, it's He who secures our place. Out of the security of our citizenship, we live the life of God's kingdom by the power of His Spirit. And the same God who loves without limits He drew near to us that we might be brought near to him is the same God then who works in us that we might love as he loves. And so to love without limits, it's not us now trying to work out of the finite resources of our own hearts, but out of the infinite resources of God's love in Christ. Now that's how we love without limits. Not from our own strength, not from our own ability. God gives. He provides that love. And just in closing, to to give an example and a testimony of that, I want to read a short bit um, from the life of Corrie ten Boom. So yesterday was a Holocaust Memorial Day. Corrie ten Boom was was in the concentration camp. She wasn't Jewish. She was a Dutch Christian. But her and her family were sent to the concentration camps because they had been supporting, because they'd been helping, because they'd been hiding Jewish people. And her father and her sister died in the concentration camps. Some years after the war, she recounts this incident. And this is taken from the book the hiding place. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I'd seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing. Betsy, that's her sister's, pain blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said to me. To think that, as you say, he, referring to Jesus, has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people at Blumendahl, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. 
And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us along with a command, the love itself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth, that truth that we, we've heard in that testimony of Korotemboom, but that we see also in Scripture. That you give what you command. And as you call us to, to love, or to love you with our entire being, to love our neighbor as ourselves, these things are beyond us. And yet we thank you that in Christ, yes, we have this security that you have saved us, not because of what we have done, but because Christ has, has paid it all. But now you call us to share and to walk uh, in that way of life. Lord, that we can love, not out of our own resources, but out of the overflow, Lord, of of your love as revealed in Christ. Father, my prayer for us is that we would be a people who know our standing, our security in Christ, that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. But also that we would be a people who are ever growing in Christ-likeness. Father, would you help us to love so small and so weak are the chambers of our hearts. Lord, not only enlarge them, but, but fill us afresh with your spirit that we may love and that we may walk in Christ's ways. Well, which is indeed, yes, for your glory, but also for our great joy. Well, that we would know that, that joy, that your commands are not burdensome that we have a great privilege and joy in sharing in your life. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website, or send us a message on social media. Thank you again, and please do join us next week, online or in Thurfield itself, at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.